Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. Today we're going to talk about The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Joining me today are Katie Royfe, NYU professor and author of Uncommon Arrangements. Hello, Katie. Hi. And Troy Patterson, Slate's television critic. Hey, Troy. Hey. I just want to start by throwing out a very general question. I'm assuming we're all rereading this book. It's such a staple of uh, high school lit classes. And uh, the experience of rereading a book, Troy, I think can be almost as interesting and revealing as reading it for the first time because you discover what you remember, you discover what you've forgotten, what snags in your memory. You discover how callow you were the first time you read it. <laughs> well, right. No, there's something to that as well. Exactly. It kind of marks your own development in life as much as anything. I want to start with a general question, which is what is it about a book that is so much about insubstantiality and in itself might be open to the charge of being insubstantial? It's a very slender book. It almost qualifies as a novel. <laughs> more than a novel. What is it about this book that gives it its own kind of magnificent permanence in the American canon of literature? Troy. Well, Stephen, there, there are two things. One is the, the kind of melting lyricism of the phrases. I, I think that sentence by sentence, it's as good as anything that's been written on in, in this country. And the other is, no, it doesn't quite feel like a novel, does it? It's partly, no. partly because of its length uh, and partly because of it's kind of sense of compression. It feels less like a novel than like a fable. Oh, interesting. A fable. I like that. What do you think, Katie? A fable, a novel, a novella, or should we dispense with uh, the genre apparatus? And Well, maybe we can dispense with the genre apparatus. I think it's, um, I mean, I agree with Troy. I think it's the sentences that really make it last. And, you know, in terms of a novel, part of the problem is the plot is sort of ridiculous. Mm-hmm and gimmicky um, in a way and incidental in a way to the real action of the book. But I think that it's – it is interesting this reading it as an adult because I think most people first encounter this book in high school and the adult perspective is really different. I think we should talk a little bit about that. I mean didn't you you feel differently reading this book? I mean what did it mean that was different to you now? Oh, very much so. I mean part of the problem is you encounter it as someone – initially you're half the age of the man who wrote it. And because he was so young, as you encounter it later in life, I'm now close to twice the age of the man who wrote it. It's an entirely different book. And the lyricism strikes me as utterly necessary to cover for what would otherwise – I mean, I, I think I said to Troy last night when I ran into him on the street, I said, I said, if the if the writing were to flag for one second, the absurdity of the book would be uh, manifest. But why don't we why don't we dig in a little bit and, and experience the writing of the book firsthand? And then maybe, Troy, you can give us a, a plot summary. But let's hear Fitzgerald. This is very early on in the book. The book is narrated by Nick Carraway, 
who has gone over to um, meet his cousin, who, as it turns out, lives nearby on uh, Long Island. We walked through a high hallway into a bright, rosy-colored space, fragilely bound into the house by French windows at either end. The windows were ajar and gleaming white against the fresh grass outside that seemed to grow a little way into the house. This, by the way, starts on page, the bottom of page 7 and continues on to page 8. A breeze blew through the room, blew curtains in at one end and out the other like pale flags, twisting them up toward the frosted wedding cake of the ceiling, and then rippled over the wine-colored rug, making a shadow on it as wind does on the sea. The only completely stationary object in the room was an enormous couch on which two young women were buoyed up as though upon an anchored <coughs> balloon. They were both in white, and their dresses were rippling and fluttering, as if they had just been blown back in after a short flight around the house. I must have stood for a few moments listening to the whip and snap of the curtains and the groan of a picture on the wall. Then there was a boom as Tom Buchanan shut the rear windows, and the caught wind died out of the room, and the curtains and the rugs and the two young women ballooned slowly to the floor. And then later, he describes the two women on the couch, the second of whom is Daisy, who made an attempt to rise, she leaned slightly forward with a conscientious expression. Then she laughed, an absurd, charming little laugh. And I laughed, too, and came forward into the room. And then Daisy says, I'm p p paralyzed with happiness. Well, this obviously sets up the plot of the book in some respect, because without Daisy, there is no romance to Gadsby. And that's sort of the essence of the book. So, Troy, walk us a little bit through this plot, the story. The story of the novel is it's essentially kind of two love triangles that share one point in common and then a car accident and uh, a murder and a suicide. Um, <laughs> All in a very brief a, book. Exactly. Now, can I just jump in here quickly? That, to me, was what I forgot about the book in some sense, was the intricacies of the infidelities and the number of times that people driving back and forth from Long Island pull over in order to have you know, kind of uh, lurid uh, encounters. The the apparatus of the plot, it seems to me, is what sort of fades from your memory, whereas there's this kind of affective uh, presence of these lyrical uh, passages and and, um, and, um, and the romance of Gatsby himself. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> proceed. <laughs> um, proceed to talk about the plot more? Yeah. Um, first of all, all the principal characters in this book have come back east, migrated east from their homes in the Midwest. And we're in, on Long Island, and West Egg and East Egg are the two towns, which are, I guess, roughly correspond to Great Neck and Manhasset on Long Island. So Nick Carraway is, is out of, he's gone to Yale, he's been to the war, he feels restless um, at home, and I, I suppose that, like Fitzgerald, he hails from St. Paul, Minnesota. He's gone to get into the bond business, and he kind of rekindles this acquaintanceship with uh, his cousin Daisy with her voice full of money and her brutish husband Tom, who was a classmate of his in college. He discovers that he's living next door to the great Gatsby, to Jay Gatsby, who's um, acquired a great deal of wealth and dreams of acquiring Daisy, with whom um, he had had a romance when he was a serviceman stationed near Saint, uh, stationed near Louisville. And a pen penniless young yes. man, yeah. So that's the the bearish sketch of the plot. I don't. Well, the first thing that struck me in, in terms of reevaluating my feelings about the book was that I I don't know that I'd had um, a proper uh, appreciation for Nick, both as a device and the necessary way that his narration 
kind of gives the story some ironic distance. And also I think I'd maybe shortchanged him or taken for granted a bit his, his decency. He's the one main character in the book with a real kind of moral self. Yeah. He announces right at the beginning of the book, right, Katie, the, the, there are so many passages. What stays with you is not only the lyricism of the language and the romance of Gatsby, but also I think there are certain sets of set pieces almost or passages in the book that are just imprinted on your brain. Once mm -hmm. you've read them, the writing is so sort of incandescently beautiful mm -hmm. and perfect. The beginning of the book in which Nick Carraway describes himself as sort of what would be the right word, Troy? He doesn't say that he's passive necessarily, but he has some quality that induces other men to confide in him. Mm -hmm. And that is what propels the action of the book in some way, that, that it allows Carraway to be this kind of uh, slightly distant ob observer. And he's, he's imputed to him as maybe slightly more human kindness than he has or understanding than he really possesses. But out of that, I mean, I keep saying passivity. It's not. It, what, does he, what does he actually say at the beginning of the book? Uh, he's a, that uh, reserving judgments is, mm -hmm. uh, yes. is, is what he does, which he calls a matter of infinite hope. Right. Um, He's a sympathetic listener, and that's why he mm -hmm. he has uh, this window onto these lurid scenes because he doesn't he's not quick to judge and, acting, and acting can, on his father's famous and content probably sense. to have a smaller personality in an age that expands and makes quite grand certain personalities, and so he kind of is a bit of a fly on the wall. Right. In it's the all these of the book. theatrical yeah. beings, that... and he's happy to be this this kind of observer. What struck me this time was uh, how sad so much of it is and the despair even the scene you just read there's so many social scenes mm -hmm. parties dinner parties social scenes where people are just not connecting to each other uh, in absolutely. a way that's actually and i guess this is what i missed the first time around sort of realistic i mean there's a great dinner party scene where they're having this dinner party and um tom buchanan's mistress calls in the middle of the dinner party yes. and daisy's falling apart and but yet nobody really cares about anything. And it's so beautifully and perfectly done, this kind of social nihilism mm -hmm. or the lack of connection between people, which obviously – and I think that is something I, I didn't really get when I read it the first time. And I think combined with that despair, this kind of absolute social despair, is the beautiful language mm -hmm. and, and the kind of radiance of these descriptions. And it's the combination of those two things. Mm -hmm. People are not connecting. Nobody's talking to each other. It's all this sort of – hopeless situation and yet described in these in these sentences that are so lush and so amazing mm -hmm. um, and it's the tension and contrast between those two energies that I think create the true interest of this book. I think that's beautifully put. I mean, social nihilism strikes me as exactly right. And there are a series of them. They almost sort of build on each other. One of the early ones is involves Nick accompanying Tom, who's, as you say, day, day, as you say, Troy, Daisy's brutish husband, this kind of hulking sort of linebacker or whatever he was, defensive end from Yale, who's just made out of muscle and he has these sort of brutish ideas that are that are ridiculously uh, ill-conceived and, and received secondhand. And he's obviously completely unhappy. He's athlete I think, and He's a real, real jock. Yeah, he's like a, a Yale jock. And um, a, a critical point of the novel is that Tom is vis-a-vis is -vis the infidelity, the, the cuckoldry that he becomes aware of later in the book, which is that he realizes that's a magnificent moment, too. Because you're right, there's this pervasive sense of social disconnection and incomprehension and misapprehension throughout the book, which we should talk about more. But then there's this magnificent moment where... 
Daisy just says something almost half under her breath in the presence of Gatsby, and it's directed at Gatsby, and they exchange a look. And at that moment, Buchanan has the horror gestalt of every husband when he realizes his wife is in love with uh, or sleeping with and in love with another man. But there's a hypocrisy at the center of the book, which is that Tom is a serial philanderer himself. And one of the early set pieces in the book involves Tom taking Nick into New York City with his mistress, and they have a party at the apartment it's her sister's apartment or an apartment that Tom keep, keeps, keeps for her, her in the yeah. city. Yeah, and it's and the luridness of it. You're exactly right. The lightness of the, the lightness and the beautiful lyricism of the writing, and it's it's just perfect feathery nuances set against how drunken and empty the interactions are. And so social nihilism is vicious. just right. and, yeah. and vicious. And, 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 and there's a sense of fragmentation and disconnection, which is you know I mean it's interesting that right Troy that that that. Fitzgerald is writing at exactly the moment that Joyce is writing, and, and, and he's, he's a modernist in a completely other sense. Is he a modernist, even? A mo- well, he coins the phrase the jazz age, and he has some, he has, a, he has, there's this feeling of kind of um, uh, fragmentation and disconnection that's covered over with lyricism and kind of uh, just, you know, linguistic beauty. But there is a way in which the universe feels uh, uh, socially fragmented and, and hopelessly modern in the same way it does for T.S. Eliot or Joyce. Right, I would say. No, no, no. That's, uh, I'd say that's absolutely true. But I, I also think that one of the reasons the book works as it does is because Scott Fitzgerald's sort of training was as a popular writer, yeah. kind of like churning out these stories, a lot of the perfectly lovely for the Saturday Evening Post, and that sort of initially his his project wasn't kind of consciously arty. Yes. And I'll also throw in just on the note of social nihilism. That that's, yeah, the, that's another thing that struck me more than ever this time. And the, the, sort of, there are two moments. One, at uh, one of Gatsby's parties, these great bacchanals, Jordan Baker, Daisy's friend, and Nick's kind of wry, and, and they, they date a bit, his, his girlfriend. Uh, she observes that um, you know, big parties are always more intimate than small parties because you get a chance to have these secrets and scandals. Uh, And then later, when um, Nick and Gatsby and Daisy are together at um, Nick's house having tea, Gatsby having encouraged this to happen so that he can reconnect with his lost love, Nick says that um, at some point he tries to leave uh, and writes, um, I I tried to go then, but they wouldn't hear of it. Perhaps my presence made them feel more satisfactorily alone. which I think, if I'm getting what Katie said, it kind of also points towards this sort of social nihilism a bit. Like these people don't know how to be alone with themselves. They don't know how to be themselves. Right, and I think, and, and not knowing how to be themselves also obviously is another great theme of this book um, in terms of personal mythologies. Everybody has their own personal mythology, whether it's Tom Buchanan and his past, this glorious past as an athlete, or obviously Gatsby mm-hmm. being the most central one where he's just invented himself and created himself out of nothing, even from changing his name to Jay, from Jay Gatz. And so everybody is very busy envisioning some fantasy version of themselves that's existing at the same time as the real version of themselves. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, part of the tragedy of this book is about the failure and breakdown of those mythologies, how all these ideas you have of of yourself in the world are just that. They're these kind of fragile, beautiful things. And I mm-hmm. think, again, the beauty of the language is pointing out at the same time 
that there's something sort of beautiful and heroic about these ideas and yet chronicling their total failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also, we should say, an interesting moment to read a book like this because it's, you know, it's about the 1920s and it's written in the 20s about the 20s, which I think is is interesting. They hadn't kind of uh, crashed upon the shoals of the 30s and the Great Depression. And here we are on the verge of who knows what. And to read a book about that's by implication sort of about the era that may just be coming to an end for us, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sort of, sort of compelling and a kind of haunting and slightly weird way. Why don't we read another passage from the book, Troy? There's one near the middle that you uh, you had picked out. Yeah, and I, I picked it out. Well, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to see if I can stumble into figuring out why I picked it out. It's The margins of my book are uh, in this section. It's... Uh, it's pretty much an even distribution of check marks and question marks. It's from the end of Chapter 6, uh, and uh, Nick is telling us he's, he's kind of pieced together these um, an understanding of what happened between um, between Daisy and oh, Gatsby in Louisville. Yeah. Let me just say, I have the Scribner edition, which looks exactly like the one I read in like high school, I think, so it may be the somewhat standard one. And uh, so I'm thinking it's page 110, in the, in the Scribner paperback. All right. One autumn night, five years before, they had been walking down the street when the leaves were falling, and they came to a place where there were no trees and the sidewalk was white with moonlight. They stopped here and turned toward each other. Now it was a cool night with that mysterious excitement in it which comes at the two changes of the year. The quiet lights in the houses were humming out into the darkness, and there was a stir and bustle among the stars. Out of the corner of his eye, Gatsby saw that the blocks of the sidewalks really formed a ladder and mounted to a secret place above the trees. He could climb to it, if he climbed alone, and once there he could suck on the pap of life, gulp down the incomparable milk of wonder. His heart beat faster and faster as Daisy's white face came up to his own. He knew that when he kissed this girl and forever wed his unutterable visions to her perishable breath, his mind would never romp again like the mind of God. So he waited, listening for a moment longer to the tuning fork that had been struck upon a star. <laughs> then he kissed her. At his lips' touch, she blossomed for him like a flower, and the incarnation was complete. Through all he said, even through his appalling sentimentality, I was reminded of something, an elusive rhythm, an elusive rhythm a fragment of lost words that I had heard somewhere a long time ago. For a moment, a phrase tried to take shape in my mouth, and my lips parted like a dumb man's as though there were more struggling upon them than a wisp of startled air. But they made no sound, and what I had almost remembered was uncommunicable forever. There, there's some real loveliness and amazing control of tone there. There's also a bit of um, overripeness. You know, I've, I've got a couple... I think that this book is great, but I've also got problems with it, and one is... These, these kind of Fitzgerald swoons. There's there's a lot of the moon and the stars. And but the, I have a question for you, though. This is why I was marking up this passage. Through all he said, even through his appalling sentimentality, at some point we're blending into the language that Gatsby himself uses to describe that moment, which Carraway regards as overwrought and ridiculous. But what's so peculiar about it and slightly modernist is that it's unclear when... Caraway stops and where Gadsby starts in that passage because you go from beautiful language to to ridiculous language, the tuning fork upon the star. And then and you're not sure. You're actually quite disoriented. It's not in quotes. There's no indication that this is 
entering into the consciousness of Gadsby. And then all of a sudden you get Carraway rejecting the language completely as appallingly sentimental. And you think, well, was that really Gadsby? I mean, it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. very weird. Well, he rejects the language as appallingly sentimental, and yet it evokes this yeah. thing he can barely remember. So at the same time as he's rejecting it as appallingly sentimental, it's striking a chord in him of something he wishes, some like childhood yeah. lullaby or some sure. fantasy in yeah. himself. So he's not totally rejecting it. Right. No, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, right. That's a, what I, I like. Um, Nick has this uh, sort of negative capability, right? This sort of what Fitzgerald you know, taking off from Keats calls the ability to hold two opposing ideas in the mind at the same time and retain the ability to function, that sort of Nick has that with respect to Gatsby. At once he thinks he's kind of like a ridiculous figure, but he says from from the first page that there's there's something gorgeous about him in his kind of reservoir of hope and, it, and in his sort of romantic, I mean that with a small r and a big r, in his romantic quality. How much do we credit, and and isn't this central to whether or not the book qualifies as a deeply felt and sort of genuinely tragic book, how much do we credit Gatsby's love for Daisy? Well, you stumped the panel. <laughs> uh, you, no, I mean, I went. don't think we, I don't think that we, I mean, again, I think there is a fundamental emptiness here, which is I don't think we credit it that much. But um, do we credit it somewhat? I mean, it's, it's, I, this well, is. Well, it's the, it's not. You don't believe that the love is actually for the object. Does he know Daisy? Does oh, it have anything to do yeah. with the real Daisy? Do they have any potential yeah. real relationship? Or is it just yeah. the dream? And the dream and the ideal function in this book, obviously mm-hmm. like the famous green light. Um, and this may be why it appeals to teenagers who, of course, have no real emotions of themselves. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, the the idea of Daisy is much more important than Daisy. Mm-hmm. And so I think you credit the idea of Daisy, this like entire meaning that gives purpose to his life, but is it fundamentally more real or true than say the beautiful house he builds mm-hmm. or all the monuments to kind of, you know, and aspirations that he has. And right. I think ultimately you don't believe in this love as a love. Mm-hmm. Um, and nor is it meant to be portrayed as some kind of realistic connection between these two people. Right. right. I'm, I'm going to venture that he's, Forty-nine percent in love with Daisy and fifty-one percent in love with the idea of hooking up with a, a rich girl who's at ease in her wealth and in her station. Mm-hmm. And right to my mind, the sort of culmination of the social nihilism of the book comes when uh, Tom Buchanan and and Jay Gatsby finally are forced to confront each other over the issue of Daisy's love, and and Tom's brutalism kind of wins out in a in a sad way. And that shows the sort of weakness, the kind of gauzy, fleecy weakness of of Daisy as a character and the quality of her love for Gatsby. Because as I read it, he essentially just reveals to her what an empty little bootlegger and kind of chiseler Gatsby is in the presence of Gatsby. And this destroys, appears to my mind, to destroy Gatsby in the eyes of Daisy. And then conversely, um, and I think slightly more powerfully, he shows Gatsby that there's a limit to how much Daisy will relinquish Tom, that the Tom shows this to Gatsby, that that he that it's impossible for Gatsby or for Tom to get Daisy to admit that she never loved Tom, which is why their 
marriage ends up uh, abiding. Um, and so they're sort of mutually – Tom's, in other words, brutally destroys the image of one uh, – of each one in the other's eyes in this in this horrible scene. But, Katie, you're shaking your head. You disagree with me. Well, I mean, I, I th- that's true, although I think that Daisy was never – I don't think it's actually the revelation that Gatsby is making his money illegally that breaks up their relationship. I think Daisy was never a strong enough character to persevere and leave her husband and run off with somebody else, that she's always – um, passive and you know, sort of wispy, and that it, and that she's going to go with the stronger person, and the stronger person in this sort of masculine way is going to be Tom, and she's going to stick with her conventional world. Oh, that's and, interesting. So it's just simply the fact all, that he is the t- yeah that he's asserting his yes. This is where we are, and I think that she's never um, the idea of overturning social convention is not. Um, part of it's just never going to be what Daisy's going to do. She's mm-hmm. not a strong character. She's a weak character. She's, you know, we see her right from the beginning in her white and floaty and she's never going to um uh she's not embodying a certain kind of passion. That's not really what she's ever meant to be. Right. Um and so I don't think that there was any chance regardless of I, I think that's just the form it happened to take that he does this revelation, oh he's not one of he's not our kind of person. He's he making his money illegally. That's the form this particular moment takes, but it, there was always going to be that moment. Yeah, I think for the most part, I'm with Katie on that one. What strikes me most about the scene is that is the way that um, Gatsby's dream kind of crumbles in one moment when they're, all of them are in this um, hotel suite at the at the plaza, kind of they're, they're arguing about and over Daisy, and it's, it's heated, and Tom and Gatsby are both trying to egg her into declaring her affections. Daisy says to Gatsby, you know, I did love him once, but I loved you too. And Gatsby's like, you love me too? <laughs> it's this kind of this essential part of his um, of his dream, of his fantasy had been that she'd just been biding her time with in this loveless marriage with, with Tom. And he can't quite bear the, um, bear the notion that he was anything other than her one and only true love. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's erected this entire reality, you know, the entire magnificent reality. What does he use? There's an amazing word that uh, Caraway uses, caravanery or something. Uh Anyways, this wild uh, bacchanal, as Troy said, uh, that goes on in the ridiculous mansion that it happens in is all erected in the perverted homage to Daisy and the love of Daisy, whereas Daisy has an entire life that's completely separate from and bears no relationship to Gatsby in a way. And there's that scene towards the end of the book where Nick goes to spy on them, I think, the night of the – we should start pointing towards the end of the book where there's a kind of ridiculous uh, car accident and um, the plot's kind of lurched forward um, with some silly contrivances. But but there's a quite affecting scene where Nick, I think, at, at the behest of um, Gatsby, goes over to just look and see whether he's afraid. Gatsby claims that he's afraid that Tom is going to kind of rough up Daisy um, at the end of the day or whatever. But he just wants some intelligence on, on what's going on in the household. And I think Nick witnesses a um, a scene of domestic kind of tranquility and, and resolution, which brings to a point one element of the book we haven't talked about, which is the difference between East Egg and West Egg which is insisted upon over and over and over again in the book. Troy, you know, tell us a little bit about that, how the snobberies of the book, the architecture of its snobberies are, are lined up. About Gatsby in uh, sort of nouveau riche, West Egg, yeah. looking with 
moist eyes towards the old money establishment of East Egg. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I, I mean that's, <laughs> that's, that's that's kind of that's the gist. We of nailed it. it. I'm yeah, not, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how much I have to add beyond that. I'd I'd rather try to turn around and talk about one of the things that bugs me about the book, and it, perhaps it explains why it is and uh, always will be a staple of um, a staple of uh, high school reading list is that there's something in its kind of symbolism and in its mm-hmm. crafting that's can be a little bit too pretty and a little too tidy and a little too blatant. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also um, this connects to what you were saying at the beginning about the fable. Yes. You know, and that, yeah. and that at every moment when he's writing about Daisy and at every point he's writing about America. Yes. He's writing about the American dream. And I think that's part of the prettiness you're talking about, which is the kind of thematic perfection of this book. Right. There's that. Um, and that does lend itself to – I mean the reason that every high school teacher wants to teach this book is because it is about the American dream. Right. You know, and and in it, a way that's just ambiguous enough to uh, sort of <laughs> hazes things over a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right. Plus its plot follows the basic plot outlines of The Hills and every other <laughs> you know such drama that's mm-hmm. fed to high school students. It's like he's sleeping with her but she really wants to be with him and blah, blah, right. blah. I mean it has that kind of yeah. – there's that, and also, and again, it's to be the book's big flaws are uh, inseparable from its great triumphs. The way that Fitzgerald has a terrific control, especially of the sense of time, mm-hmm. but it, it can be a, a little bit too sort of deliberate too. I'm thinking most. What graded on me most was the way the um, the car accident is is kind of foreshadowed, and sort of insistently. There's mm-hmm. somebody runs their car into a ditch coming out of one of Gatsby's parties. There's right. a Right. We hear about a scene where Tom cheating on on Daisy shortly after their marriage gets in a car accident, and rips the wheel off a car. At some point, you know, Jordan is, discusses her talents as a rotten driver and says it takes two to make an accident, which is the the, the kind of neat, tidy little sort of plotting that lends itself well to three page essays for. <laughs> In my case, Mrs. Moore's. But it's sort of not <laughs> neat. I mean, I guess I disagree with you in this respect. I think the plot being, as we've said, so absurd and so sort of like what happens has to happen, like the murder, the car accident. It's almost like the plot is almost like another one of these kind of hyper-aestheticized things that doesn't really matter in mm-hmm. this book. Um, and I think the plot is, is, so, is sort of external. I mean, he's almost like joking with this plot. You know, it's almost like this plot isn't what this book is about. I mean, the plot is almost put there to sort of, you know, for because it has to have a plot, but it doesn't feel like he's totally taking seriously this plot. And the plot is not what the book is about. So I, I guess I think it's not a perfect plot. It's almost the opposite. Well, it, it well, right. I mean, it's not a perfect plot, but it's kind of, it's plotted in a, this kind of, I keep returning to the word blatant way that, that, um, it's, it's contrived. I mean, yeah. yeah. And you feel it's contrivances, but, but you forgive the contrivances because, for example, what you need is Gadsby dead. You need him dead by mm-hmm. the end of the book and you need him, uh, you need his father to come visit. And then, okay, so we get, Gad, we get, we produce the corpse by series of creaky levers and pulleys. Um, and that's too bad. But, um, but, but, but once you get him dead and you have Nick Carraway trying to put together the funeral for Gadsby, I mean, mm-hmm. that's the extraordinary last mm-hmm. fifth of the book is just him trying to get somebody to come to the funeral and the kind of, you know, uh, that just sort of howling emptiness of this man's life is suddenly um, hitting you. And it's not in, in obvious, but it has this like real power to it. I mean, yeah. th- th- this added up to kind of nothing in a weird way. But let me... Let me just quote a, a, a passage quickly 
It's on a page, page starts on page 124 of my uh, version, and this is something that you might miss because it's kind of a secondary plot, which is Tom Buchanan is sleeping with the wife of an auto mechanic uh, midway between wherever they live on Long Island and New York City, and he pulls Nick Carraway over on the road early on in the novel, and and they pick her up and they go into New York City. Later in the novel, there's a brutally hot day, and they're kind of in this sort of ale-induced uh, stupor, and and. Um, this brings to a head, even though the plot is creaking again at this point, this brings to a head this kind of theme of of kind of rampant misapprehension and social nihilism. In one of the windows over the garage, the curtains had been moved aside a little, and Myrtle Wilson, the woman that Tom Buchanan is sleeping with, was peering down at the car. So engrossed was she that she had no consciousness of being observed. And here again, we have Nick as the, as the silent observer. And one emotion after another crept into her face like objects into a slowly developing picture. Her expression was curiously familiar. It was an expression I had often seen on women's faces, but on Myrtle Wilson's face it seemed purposeless and inexplicable until I realized that her eyes, wide with jealous terror, were fixed not on Tom, but on Jordan Baker, whom she took to be his wife. So you have this... The creakiness of it is, oh, there's the mistress, there's the wife, the infidelity, and let's gin all that up into a, into a story. But you have this extraordinary moment with this woman who's sort of a pawn in all of this, thinks she's having a revelation that she's not having because she thinks she's looking at Daisy Buchanan, but she's really looking at Jordan. And there's a way in which in which those kinds of misapprehensions in the midst of what would otherwise be a kind of highly contrived kind of farce-like plot um, keep it kind of strange and, and, and beautiful. And I guess, I, I mean, I sort of disagree with you about the, like, it's too bad that there's this creaky plot, mm-hmm. contrived plot. Because I think, just as Troy's saying, the bad things about this book are so bound up with the good things about this book. And the creaky, contrived yeah. plot is part of the fable and is part of the peculiar time compression you're talking mm-hmm. about and is part, so much a part of what he's doing with this book. And I think if you actually had a more kind of, you know, a slower, more believable plot, um, you don't have what this book is, mm-hmm. which is the concentrated, bizarre fable that it is. Yeah. And I guess I don't think you can separate out and put on a different kind of, you know, more conventional plot and have a better book. I just don't see that. It's it's hard to wish this book to be a better or different book. It's yeah, I mean, co- I, crazy I, in a way. I, yeah, I, and no, I, I think I think what 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 you're you know the the problems that one has with a plot speak to, to me more to what Troy was saying at the beginning, which is that this isn't quite a novel. You know, in certain ways, it's a very unusual kind of novel. And that what makes it the thing that it is, is all these kind of factors together, which mm-hmm. is the ridiculous contrived plot, the beauty of the sentences, the nihilism, the myth, personal mythologies, the time compression, the way everything works, the narrator. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all together. And I just don't, I guess I don't think we can we can imagine this book without with a different kind of more, you know, healthier, more functional plot. Yeah. No, I'm, 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 I'm with you on that. Why don't we move uh, to the last passage that we're going to read and then okay. start talking about the end of the book? Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher and the inessential houses began to melt away until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes a fresh green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees and the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory enchanted moment, 
Man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. And as I sat there brooding on the old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Troy, you said something that I thought was fascinating earlier, which is that in a perverse way, this is really a book about the West, not about the East, which Nick Carraway says outright. He says all of us were from the West. And that this is what distinguishes this book quite starkly from, for example, an Edith Wharton book, which is very much about the East and and the social rootedness of some people and the social power of certain people um, in the Eastern establishment. Something about the object uh, that the, the, the object finally being commensurate with the capacity for wonder and the sadness when it isn't, does that in some thematic way link up with people instead of going west to uh, coming back east? Oh, probably. Um, <laughs> um, well, I mean, no, it's, it's worth the effort to, to kind of sort out where Fitzgerald is, is kind of being vaguely vague and grand and a bit sort of like hazily poetic about this country and what it means and to, to sort that out is more kind of acute social analysis of the, the, the chaos of, of, of the society that was coming into being then. That's not an answer to your question, is it? Um, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know exactly how to get my head around it, Katie. <laughs> well, I mean, I think he's writing about the act of imagination mm-hmm. and invention and that this kind of movement west to east is – just like the movement East pioneering West to California is a very American idea of becoming something, dreaming Mm -hmm. yourself up, inventing from the beginning. And I think that that moment where he goes to the Dutch sailor's eyes and sort of peels back the island and sees the trees and sees what the trees that were cleared for Gatsby's house does connect it all Mm -hmm. um, to fundamentally the separation that he's going to make between the tarnished, fallen, silly corrupt way in which our dreams and fantasies play themselves out in the real world that are infinitely depressing and more depressing than you remember if you haven't read this book in a long time and the dream itself which is pure Mm -hmm. and I think you know and obviously he is and maybe this is you know the sort of uncomfortable thing he is writing both about America and he's also writing about you know the personal translation Mm -hmm. um, you know just in terms of what we want and and in our lives, mm-hmm. um, both at the same time. Yeah, right. And there's something about, well, to bring it back to the East Egg, West Egg distinction, it's so funny that 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 it's not that Gatsby, when he's looking out at the green light and thinking about Daisy, it's it's not that they represent this snobby, highly pedigreed, deeply rooted sort of social, you know, upper tier of the American social caste system to which Gatsby aspires, um, that, that Fitzgerald actually takes that element out of it completely by making the, the, the Daisy and Tom Buchanan's sort of equally kind of flighty and, and, and kind of unrooted. 
as Gatsby. I mean, there's a kind of parody there in a weird way. And that's what keeps this from being a, so, a rooted social novel in the old tradition of the right. 19th century novel. It makes it feel very modern in a way. It's really not about He doesn't of, have the fundamental snobbery that Edith Wharton actually has. Yes, exactly she does right. believe the people with a better reading <laughs> do have better reading. Yeah, better reading, yeah. better. Yeah. It, with him, it's like those people who play polo or, you're right, just as rootless and yeah. you know, wandering as anyone else. Right. It prefigures the kind of Ralph Lauren fantasy that the Hamptons became of, of the sort of fantasy of old money, but but really with none of the whatever whatever old money pedigree confers, I, probably nothing really, but, but at least with uh, none of the pre- pretense to that. You know, another thing that struck me is that the, the old English novel is sort of about who gets to live in the nice manor house in a way. Mm-hmm. And this was a book about looking into other people's houses, mm-hmm. that the formative experience for Gatsby is going to Daisy's house back five years earlier and looking into her house and imagining her as this wealthy person. And then the entire sort of backstory of the book is the creation of a person who gets to have the house that everyone else looks into Mm -hmm. in a weird way and how that at the end of the day still doesn't earn him uh, Daisy. Um, uh, And and it's it's a book so much more about, about desire and longing because uh, Daisy's so kind of weak and and incapable of living up to um, the scope of of Gatsby's desire in a, in a weird way. And I think you're right. I mean, to point to the houses because the houses are sort of impermanent, you know. Yes. And um, it is the opposite of the manor in a Jane Austen novel. You know, the houses are just there's something so flimsy about all of them. You yeah. Know, whether it's Nick's house that he's renting or yeah. Gatsby's house, which is going to be shut down. Or, you know, even the Buchanan's house, they all seem flimsy. They all yeah. kind of feel like mirages. And... Mm-hmm. I mean, an interesting thing about this book is that it's the rare book that's on both the snob list of the modern library, best 100 novels of the 20th century, and the People's Choice list. Um, the People's Choice list is dominated by Anne Rand and L. Ron Hubbard somewhat dispiritingly. And, of course, the snob list is Ulysses and Lolita and uh, Under the Volcano. But this one is on both. What is it, Joy, about this book that uh, – everyone loves? I would suppose that it, it's partly uh, has to do with its lyrical grace. And again, it, it partly has to do with its kind of um, <coughs> the, the squishiness of all its, its symbolism. It, uh, it, it, there are ways in which it, the book means whatever you want it to mean. I, I was struck, again, I, I bumped into Stephen last night and I was trying to figure out what we would have to say about this book. And I was thinking back to this um, it's a story that ran on, I think, the front page of the New York Times back in February uh, that was about The Great Gatsby and how it gets taught in high schools these days, especially to sort of like first and second generation immigrants. And it was interesting to read kind of a, their take on the story, some of them who have this, um, this kind of unambiguous, unironic feeling that that green light at the end of the dock is the symbol of, you know, uncomplicated and entirely worthy hope. And so there's a, a quote from um, like a 14-year-old saying that, you know, my green light is Harvard. Uh, and it was kind of interesting to, to, to read these kids comparing Jay Gatsby to Jay-Z um, and, and so forth. And, so, you know, some of them I think were kind of quite acute critics and some of them – were sort of way off, but not way off in a way that I can really fault them for, which is maybe um, a long-winded way of saying that uh, the book's popularity is um, a testament to its quality as 
a mirror reflecting each reader's idea of America and what it's about. I buy that. K- Katie, what do you think? A mirror reflecting America and what it's about? I disagree with Troy a little because I don't think there's that much ambiguity in this plot. And I don't think it's totally a mirror to whatever you want to interpret it as. Um, and I think that it does lend itself to that immigrant reading of the green light really does stand for something pure that ends up getting corrupted. And I guess I think I think I will go back to I think the um, our enormous renewable affection for this book is is about this idea of the dream or the mythology or the idea of yourself and the way that you want to live um, this fundamentally very American dream and its total failure and corruption and um, how fallen it is when we actually try to translate that into life. And I think that it is the combination of that um, fall and corruption with the extremely beautiful language that makes this book fascinating Mm. uh, to everybody. Yeah, I mean, the way I would put it uh, for me personally was that this was just another encounter with you know, the American sensibility, which we're big desirers, but not necessarily deep feelers. And we think in terms of individuals and not the sort of social medium in which they interact. And American literature, I think, expresses that, you know, over and over and over again. And that that I wanted the feeling of this book to be deeper, even though I knew that that would compromise the essential feeling of it, which is why I chose that 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 passage of the sort of balloon-like quality. Troy said kind of mirage-like quality, I think, to so much of uh, of of what happens in the book, which is necessary to its its character, you couldn't have deeper feelings between Daisy and Jay and have the book somehow survive it in a way. But but what it means is we don't we don't create tragedies in some sense or convincing tragedies. In American novels, even the best one, end in a slightly preposterous note, like the Pequod, you know, going under, or uh, even Wharton, who comes closest to being a European novelist on American soil, uh, Lily Bart's death is melodramatic more than it is sort of uh, deeply felt and powerful. But well, on that dreary note, let's wrap things up today. I should say that in a few weeks upcoming, we'll be doing Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. For Katie Royfe and Troy Patterson, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us.